0: listening to the live drop my guest is author and journalist steven vogel his book betrayal in Berlin: the true story of the cold war's most audacious espionage operations is on shelves now Um, it's about operation gold it's a daring plan to dig a clandestine tunnel about as long as the empire state building into the soviet sector in berlin from the american sector Uh, it took place in the mid-50s like around 1955 1956 at the time the entire operation was compromised uh, by a british spy named george blake who Stephen interviews for this book as well um, but it did provide a trove of extremely valuable information for the years to come and we also refer in this interview to a film called the innocent 1991 john schlesinger film based on a book by ian McEwan of the same name that um, essentially reenacted that operation and was my first acting job and that film more or less adhered to the mood and uh, textures of the operation so we had a lot to talk about um, this interview is fascinating for me because it marks the intersection of my interest in history, my military service, my start as an actor, and my interest in intelligence with someone who wrote a great book about it. And it turns out we were in Berlin at the same time. Begin transmission now. I wanted to start really quick with your experience of writing this book personally. I mean, I know your your father was in the CIA at the time during the Berlin crisis from 57 to 62. And, um, so what, what, what were your other, uh, personal hooks into this.
1: Yeah, I mean, partly, yeah, being born there and hearing these stories later of, you know, being in Berlin, my, you know, my grandmother visiting when the the wall was being built and actually like sort of confronting an East East German Vopo and picking up a a piece of concrete that we still have from the wall. And then, you know, I'd studied German in high school and college had visited. Your your grandmother grandmother
0: has a piece of the wall when it was first being built. That's kind of unique, I think.
1: Yeah, I've I've got it now. It's actually got it in my my cabin where I where I do the writing and and all that. It's actually a, a good sized chunk. So, <laughs> and then I had some more pieces from when it came down because I was, you know, I'd been there. I'd gone back to Checkpoint Charlie as a as a teenager, gone through on a bike trip with my um, fellow high school German students, and then had happened to be there in '89 by good chance to uh, working as a freelance journalist I'd quit my job in the, for a paper in Virginia and had moved over to Germany in uh, the fall of 89 and started writing for Army Times covering the US army in Europe and uh, the wall came down about a month after I arrived and of course I was up there immediately covering that you know Berlin Brigade aspect of the story and the you know the second Armored cavalry regiment there their inner german the border patrols that they used to do and all that and uh, ended up staying in germany for five years i only intended to stay for a couple of months but so much was happening back then it was just an exciting time and eventually i was hired by the post and covered military issues so but uh yeah it was uh, it was an exciting time I interviewed uh, you know general haddock when the wall was coming down to, pretty sure he was the uh Commander in Berlin at that point, anyway that that all kind of reinforced my my interest in Berlin. I covered the trial of Marcus Wolfe during that time period when he was put on on trial for treason, which was he thought was kind of ironic since he, you know he was being tried for treason for a country that he wasn 't a citizen of at the time so yeah, I was always interested in some of these these stories and uh, my dad died a long time ago i 'd been friends with his friends and stayed in touch and I'd heard some of their stories over the years.
0: Generations past, they're still like, you don't say who his friends were. <laughs> it's like, you, yeah. know, still, you can still tell the people that have, you know, worked in that business.
1: Oh, yeah. For, you know, for years, I you just couldn't really get into that uh, aspect. But they started loosening up, you know, once they retired. And uh, once the, everybody was sitting around with a glass of uh, scotch in their hands, stories would start coming out. Yeah. When I visited, um, I would generally the Post uh, Washington Post had a um, a bureau in Berlin. So when I was up there, because uh, I was freelancing for the Post at that point, I would just stay there. It was right Civignyplatz. Uh, do you know where that is? Um, which is actually Schratz uh, Cafe. Yeah, that area. Braxis. Yeah. yeah, I was living in in Munich and Bonn. Uh, but up and up in Berlin a lot for different reporting trips. Mm-hmm.
0: Also, this book was interesting for me because it was uh, as we went through, you know, filming this this movie. The Innocent is based on a book by Ian McHugh, and It's kind of really historical fiction. I mean, more on the fiction side than historical, but for the most part, the production designers really tried to adhere to what it really looked like and what it really felt like and the scope of the operation.
1: Yeah, no, I watched it again last night. I mean, I I watched it when I was first doing the research for the book. And uh, you're right, uh, it, it is a work of fiction, but it really succeeds in capturing the atmosphere, I think, of, of the tunnel and the paranoia and the an eerie quality about it. I think uh, in the way they portray the, the tunnel itself, I think, uh, for the most part, it, is very accurate. It just feels like you're, you're in that tunnel. I, I've seen sections of the tunnel that they have at the Allied Museum in Berlin, and now they have one at the Spy Museum in in Washington, D.C. as well. And they have, you know, the, the little wood rail line that they built in there to, to move soil around and, uh, you know, some of the electrical equipment that they had down there. So, yeah, they did a great job, I think, in, in capturing that mood.
0: Because we had a scene, I forget the name of the bar, but it was a kind, of a kind of a well-known place in East Germany where they they have, like, a kind of group dancing um, yeah, the the Resi. The Resi, that yeah. Was, they sort uh, of recreated the Resi. I didn't even know it, but as we're talking, they had the little microphones that we could, or telephones, you could call up other tables and so forth.
1: Yeah, you could you could shoot messages to another table with this pneumatic tubes, which, I mean, I, I talked to some of the soldiers who were there at the time, and they would all hang out at, at that place, and they saw a cute girl over at, you know, table 36 or whatever. They could shoot a, a little note over. It would arrive at their table through these pneumatic tubes, T- tubes that they had set
0: up. Yeah, bet one actor didn't show up for a reshoot, so they just kind of went around the table and I said, "Mark, could you just improvise, um, sending a message to this one German girl at another table?" So that, that was my first. That was my wow. first scene to reenact a resi.
1: Yeah, I think Hopkins captured a bit of because Harvey was uh, Bill Harvey, who he he was more or less based on. Roughly was uh, was a big drinker. Of course, he he definitely had some some nights where uh, people were with him ended up under the table. He he could hold a, a fair amount more than most people, but he's he still by the end of the night <laughs> might be might be slipping underneath the table as well.
0: <laughs> I liked your part in the book where you said where he first met was it Robert Kennedy or John F Kennedy? He so, said, so you're the James Bond," and I think you put an aside in there that while well, he is. All similarities to Bond to stop there. He, although he is a drinker, he doesn't care if it's shaken or it's stirred.
1: <laughs> That's right. As long as it was, you know, plentiful. The wood, basically, was the worst copious. Thing. Copious, yeah. <laughs> and then you you ended up. How did you end up getting involved in the this film?
0: Was basically in the PX when I think the director of the theater company said, "Listen, there's a film coming into town, and if you." Uh, you know, would you like to be in it? You know, you can audition for it. They want to, they want to cast real soldiers to play the soldiers, which was a little bit before its time in, in some ways. Nowadays, you, there's a lot of veterans movements to get real veterans playing these positions. But at the time, I you know, I thought, well, this is pretty cool. I'll check it out. So I, I went and went through a series of meetings and met the director, John Schlesinger and they kind of asked me about my experience. And I said that I was an engineer and I, I think... F- there, from there, they thought, "Oh, he could be one of the buffins." And I was like, "What is a what is a buff? What is a buffin?" You know, I said, "Oh, he's the one who's doing the things with the with the wires." And I was like, "You, you mean a like like splicing or something?" Because <laughs> yeah, I was an engineer, the only thing we really did was hook up, you know, hook up, you know, the detonation devices, basically. And, right. Um, I said, yeah, splicing. He goes. You're the splicer. We've got a splicer, Mark the splicer. So. That was cast, no name, no anything, just, I think, and ultimately it was, you know, tunnel technician, but
1: yeah, that's it was funny. a strange Jeez.
0: process. I mean, it was bizarre because they brought us into this huge warehouse in, I think it was in Schoenbeck, but a lot of American soldiers, I mean, throughout the years in the occupation, had sold their extra uniforms either before they left or if they were just getting worn out because the Germans had a thriving used clothing industry, you know? So Uh there were so many American uniforms over the years. So we all had on authentic Eisenhower jackets and and uniforms that some soldier (laughs) had probably worn in Berlin at one time.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah, they looked authentic. (laughs) Yeah, pretty sharp
0: jacket, though. I mean, it was a little short as Uh far as jackets go. Not much much for pockets, but, you know, I think that might have been the idea. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we, we got. And then I think I remember just the first scene we did, we were in Babelsberg Studios, which had which was the studio where, you know, they would made all their, you know, around the third turn of the century, like, you know, famous noir films. And but they it was in near Potsdam. So it was in the former East, obviously. Right. So We just kind of took over this new this old uh, studio and they were constructing this tunnel across an entire uh, soundstage. So the, the actual tunnel itself that they'd kind of constructed was it must have been at least 100, 100 feet long inside wow. the soundstage. So literally my very first day, then Anthony Hopkins sits across from me. He's like, hi, I'm Tony. How are you? And I thought, wow, this is
1: this is really too much. But it's
0: all like in 1956, right? The setting, right, everything. Right. So the, my whole memory of it is just clouded by... I mean, it's not like we were all hanging out for dinner afterwards, you know? My memory was that it actually happened in 1956, so...
1: You know, it's funny that you're like an engineer uh, background too because i mean the army corps of engineers were the ones who i guess you weren't in the corps of engineers you they had to the cia couldn't dig this tunnel they had to bring in the army to do that kind of work
0: yeah i think they even brought in technicians i mean it's lost, lost. you
1: know they trained out at sandia for the mission basically they they pulled together these uh engineers uh, i think about three officers and the rest were enlisted who had top secret clearances and had, you know, skills that they could use for constructing a tunnel. And they, they took them out to Sandia, you know, in this very obscure part of the, the base out there. And they, they practiced digging a tunnel yeah. to get ready for the mission. They didn't even know where, where the, where they were going to be sent. They just knew they were supposed to, they'd be digging some kind of tunnel in secret. So yeah. uh, I talked to yeah. a couple of those guys who uh, were still around a couple of the officers, uh, for the book, and they were uh, they had some great stories about those days. What
0: I found interesting at the time because I we're doing another scene where it was an outdoor scene, and Anthony Hopkins kind of throws a football to me. I throw a football to him, and he throws one back. And uh, one of the things that was interesting is the director asked me, said, "What do you think of this set? What do you think?" You know, there were cars coming in, and there was a huge crane where they were shooting, and it was this grassy hill and this these barracks and a you know big guard gate with lookout towers. I said, "Well, it's pretty. It's pretty." St- It's a little bit more elaborate than the actual location, and he said, "I'm sorry, what?" And I said, "The actual," and he said, "You mean there is still an actual location?" (laughs) At that point, I wasn't really sure if the director knew that it had really happened or not, or if it was still there. And I said, "Yeah, it's still, it's still there." So the pictures you see are like I went and took pictures of it and brought them to the director to show him that the actual place did exist, you know it wasn't really, it wasn't that hard to find. I mean, that was a road that we used to get to and um, not far from a road we used to get to Doughboy city, which is where, which is uh-huh. where we trained. So with a little snooping around. Right.
1: Yeah, that is, that is really cool. I hadn't seen uh, photos like that. So uh, those are awesome. I mean, they should be part of the historical record because um, I don't remember uh, at the Allied museum in Berlin where they have, you know, a fair amount of material. I don't remember seeing photos. I think there were a couple photos of what the site looked like in those days, but the, um, you have some great shots in there. That I
0: think- Yeah, because when I was there, you could definitely see where some sort of tunnel was. I mean, there's this one kind of lengthy
1: little ditch. Did the crew end up going out to the site or they just looked? I think they were just too busy, <laughs>
0: to be frank. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, uh, and another thing about it was, yeah. as, as I talked through your interview, another thing <laughs> that was interesting about it, I was working at the time at DH, the Department of Engineering and Housing, and they're uh-huh. responsible for all the infrastructure of the Berlin Brigade, you know, you had to be careful what you asked for or what you were looking for or what you were asking about. Like, you couldn't just walk up and say, hey, where's CIA headquarters, <laughs> you know? Because right, right. immediately you'd be suspect, like, why do you need to know more than you need to know? And are you yeah, going to benefit exactly. from this? You know, so it was best to just be quiet about everything and just kind of, I remember yeah. a DH, but they had no records of it. And even like the institutional knowledge in the brigade or Berlin Brigade or people in Berlin, nobody really... It's like, oh, yeah, there was a tunnel once, but that was that was it. Nobody really knew much about
1: it. You're right. I think um, at the CIA itself, too. I mean, except for the people who were involved with it, there's very little institutional uh, recollection of of the tunnel even now. I mean, I was there. I gave a talk there last week. And, yeah, people were fascinated by it. it, But it was it was almost like uh, I was talking about ancient Rome, you know, for today's uh, today's officers. I mean, it is like ancient history. For those guys.
0: Do you think with the with the tunnel that it was at the time while we were shooting it there was this tragedy because we realized oh yeah, it was it was compromised, it was given up. But um one of the things that your book brings out is the value of the intelligence that was actually collected.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because so instead of being remembered
0: um, as a failure, it was you're looking at it like, well, this was a comprehensive glimpse into the operations of the Soviets at the time.
1: Right. I mean, once once uh, it became known, after George Blake was arrested, he, of course, is the, the British spy who um, betrayed it. When he was arrested five years later, he admitted that he had, he had blown the tunnel from the start. So, I mean, everybody was immediately fearful that that, that meant all the information was disinformation, that they, you know, had been planted. But, you know, after a while, the agency and uh, the British intelligence looking over it realized that the sheer volume of material they were capturing, you know, some 400,000 communications over the course of a year, it was impossible to, um, to, you know, make 400,000 fake messages and you couldn't put some fake information in because then the real information would very soon uh, compromise the fake information that would have uh, raised red flags. And and George Blake, who was, who was very well situated for the the KGB would have been exposed because so few people knew about the tunnel. So yeah, it's interesting uh, that the KGB, essentially sold the red army down the river on this one i mean they they uh, figured it's mostly red army communications and you know we've we've got our our mole in place that we have to protect yeah
0: it's almost that he was he was too big to fail
1: yeah and they, they got their money's worth out of him so uh, it was kind of like you know you could say in a way that uh, both the kgb and the cia came out okay on, on the tunnel because uh the KGB protected Blake and the CIA got a lot of information about uh, the Soviet military, including also the GRU, the Soviet um, military intelligence, which stuff they didn't know. And, you know, it, it helped uh, build a, um, you know, order of battle information that uh, was, was completely lacking at the time. We didn't have U2 aerial reconnaissance. We didn't have satellites at the time. So, you know, getting that kind of raw information information, about the Red Army's capabilities, you know, where its units were located, um, you know, what the training levels were, what, you know, whether they were capable or not, or had any intentions of um, a sudden strike, which was the big fear at the time. That was very valuable for for the U.S. and the British to get at the time. Mm -hmm.
0: Was there anything that you remember specifically that they were surprised about the the GRU? Maybe they're
1: yeah, well, one of the fascinating things is that at the same time the tunnel was operating, they had the, the spy, Pyotr Popov, who was a GRU officer who had approached the West. So by virtue of, of Popov giving uh, reports from the field to his handler, at the same time they're, they're intercepting calls from the GRU headquarters in Moscow to Berlin and then to GRU um, locations around East Germany, they were able to just build up a lot of information about the, how the GRU operated. You know how you know where they were located. Yeah, they got uh, uh, I think a lot of new information that they didn't know about Soviet intelligence, about their operating procedures, their trade craft. Learned the identities of hundreds of both GRU and uh, some KGB officers by virtue of, of the tap. So I think um, everything they were getting was in in a sense new you know, I don't know if there was one overriding shock or surprise uh, that they learned. Uh, it was more just a, a mosaic of information.
0: And you, you interviewed uh, Khrushchev's son. He said that he wasn't really too upset about it. He said, well, we're not planning an attack, so what's the big deal?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, uh, Khrushchev was at some point informed about the tunnel. And, and uh, you know, according to his son, um, who's now a, a professor at the Brown University, uh, who's written about his father quite a bit, that was his general attitude. Because, you um, The Soviet Union, in fact, was not planning an attack on the West at that time. And uh, there was fear on both sides that the other side was going to do that. So uh, by that way of thinking, having the uh, U.S. find out some of this information uh, was not going to be particularly harmful from uh, Khrushchev's standpoint. Because, you know, if we're not attacking, then what's the problem? He might not have realized how much intelligence that the the West was getting. In fact, there's no way he could have because... the sheer volume that they were getting, uh, I think, shocked everyone, both on CIA, MI6, uh, and, and certainly the KGB didn't realize how much information was, was going out either.
0: It was interesting to see just another example of, I mean, I've talked to people from the U.S. military liaison mission, and they were the ones that were kind of driving around it. And um, I mean, from their analysis was that, no, the at least in the 70s and 80s, was, was that the Russians didn't really have the capability to launch an offensive.
1: Yeah, that was, uh, that was something of what they were getting uh, at that time too, because, you know, they learned about all these problems they were having with the, the rails, the East German rails that they would need to, to move logistically their, their equipment. Um, there were problems with like their new battle tank, which had a tread that, you know, pins that kept on breaking. So the the tanks would be useless, you know, and, and then uh, morale problems, uh, i think um not not shockingly but uh, you know a lot of the soldiers were, were kind of not too happy about being there so th- what they learned was pretty reassuring that you know in fact the soviets rather than being these 10 foot high soldiers uh who, who could overrun europe in in a day and a half had their had quite a few problems that uh, would would hold them back if they in the in the event of a war and that was one of the things that was i think holding them back from actually Wanting to launch an attack because they realized that they wouldn't be, it uh, would, it might not succeed.
0: Gosh, you met George Blake.
1: I, I spoke to him. Yeah, uh, I went to his dacha. I had actually spoken to him already on the phone. I managed to track down a phone number for for him. Well, the location of his dacha, which is uh, it's in a um, a town south uh, east of, of Moscow, that uh, where there are a lot of KGB officers who have their dachas down there. And yeah, that they they have you know, people that are, of course, are keeping an eye on, on Blake, you know, any, any, anybody like that. So I didn't feel like there was somebody following me necessarily. Um, but I, you know, I was aware that, or when I was speaking on him, uh, with him on the phone, you know, you had to figure that somebody was monitoring that line. Right. Um, and you know, that, that has basically been Blake's, uh, life since the moment he, uh, he escaped from prison and, and eventually made his way to, uh, to moscow in 1967 you know his apartment in moscow was bugged his his dacha is bugged i mean he's they had to keep an eye on him for a couple of reasons one was because um they were concerned that uh the cia or, or british you know might try to capture him back you know mm-hmm. even possibly assassinate him i mean they thought that was that's what the kgb would do you know if they could get to uh any of their um uh, defectors in the in the, in america um, and it was also just to make sure that he, you know, was staying loyal to the Soviets because, uh, you know, living a, a fairly difficult life in Moscow. You know, it, it's possible that that uh, maybe Blake would want to return to the West. Uh, he missed his family. So that, that was another reason for that. So, yeah, I, I didn't feel like um, you know if somebody was on my tail or anything like that when I went out to his dacha. You
0: mentioned that his his motivation was primarily ideology. And now that that ideology doesn't really exist in Russia, I guess in your in your opinion, do you think he would have done it anyway if the if he didn't have that
1: ideological motivation? Yeah, I mean, you was
0: think? it? I mean, just in your just from your meeting him, did you feel like that was maybe a cover for more of a ego driven um, decision, I, I, or do you think it was I think purely the, his ideology?
1: I think the his ideology was a big part of it. Um, at the same time, though, I don't think it explains. Everything he did, by any means, and I, I think, you know, talking to some of the people who knew him, to uh, Peter Montagnon, for example, who was a, an MI6 officer who was involved in the the Tunnel Taps and who who worked with Blake in in London, you know, he he felt that, um, and he, you know, he's he's uh, he was a pretty close friend with him. He he felt that Blake he felt was too smart to have bought communism, particularly in the 1950s when many of the the atrocities of, of, of Stalin's regime uh, were already known. So he always found that uh, a little bit hard to, to accept, that it could have been purely ideological. And some of his, he was held as a prisoner, a uh, captive in, in Korea during the Korean War at the time that he made that decision. You know, one or two of his uh, colleagues then kind of described him as sort of this Walter midi type figure who who kind of wanted to be the the power behind the scenes you know kind of like was uh a bit up in the clouds perhaps i i I think um and his wife his english wife actually said that too that you know blake had always been someone who enjoyed being kind of the power behind the the throne power behind the the uh, the scene more or less so i think uh that was a, a factor in his decision as well you know nobody i think even the the british judge who sentenced him 42 years nobody really questioned his that he had ideological motivations as well you did you interview his wife i was in contact with one of her sons but she doesn't want to talk about blake or any anything to do with that i mean there's uh he is actually reconciled with the three british sons that he had and they've come they've gone out to visit him in um Moscow a a number of times, including for his various birthdays, 90th birthday, and now he just recently turned 97. But no, she wrote in an account at the time of uh, his arrest, uh, where she gave a very extensive interview and uh, a transcript of that in one of the the Churchill archives uh, in Cambridge that really uh, lays out in great detail what she knew, what she did, and her story from her perspective, what she saw him doing during that time. And she never was kind of uh, a little bit annoyed by some of his ideological leanings. Like here he was a, an officer for British intelligence, but yet he was kind of uh, always expressing some sympathy for communism and, you know, kind of like a, speaking admiringly of, of Khrushchev and that would drive her crazy. And in retrospect, a lot of that made made more sense to her after his arrest.
0: Interesting person. I mean, the way you describe some of the things, she, she seems to be the kind of person I mean, she described their time in Lebanon as frighteningly happy, you know, and, and ultimately yeah. <laughs> when they just they caught him, she said she was shocked, but completely understood. <laughs> yeah. You know, like she could yeah, hold that, those that, two. Like she was capable of kind of. Exactly. Holding those.
1: It was kind of like a light bulb went off. I I truly don't think she she suspected that he was a spy. She just, But she once that was presented to her, a lot of things made sense all of a sudden and there was no uh, argument that she made, oh, you know, you must have the wrong man or you must be mistaken. Yeah. And it suddenly became very clear to her. A lot of his, of his behavior and his attitude in general over the years suddenly became much clearer. Did you have a similar experience when you found out about your own father? No, uh, because I, I, well, not good, not to the
0: extent, but, but yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause I, I thought he was uh, working for the state department. I mean, that's what, I had been raised. We were in Pakistan at the time, and uh, I was a teenager in high school. And I remember um, one night at the dinner table, I was, I was kind of talking like a teenager about how evil the CIA was because all these um, exposés had come out about what they'd done in Chile and you know these various ventures in Cuba. This was in the 1970s, and I was like, boy, the CIA's just done some terrible things. And and there was kind of a quiet pause at the dinner table, and then my parents said, well. Or something you show know. Your, your father works for the CIA. And I was like, "Oh, really? That's so cool!" You know, I just completely like did a one-eight. Oh, okay, that's great. That's a spot sounds like they
0: picked a real teachable moment. Yeah, <laughs> just Definitely. as you're about to light the American flag on fire or something. It's like, by the way, by the way, son. So, yeah. what was your what, what was he, your feeling of? I guess just to go back to Blake really quick. I mean, going to his 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 DACA. You know, have, having done all the research and, you know, seen what he did and, you know, betraying not so much the operation, but the people that he betrayed as well. Did you have mixed feelings when you when you met him? I mean, as a journalist, you have to interview, you know, it's your duty to interview him, I guess. I suppose there's, you know, researching for the book. But I was just wondering what your personal feeling was when you, you know, you met Darth Vader and he took off his helmet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, to to clarify, when I, when I went to his dacha, which we found, you know, with the you know after after much uh, searching around, I went with one of the the translators from the Washington Post's uh, Moscow. Blake was not available; he was sick, in fact. Uh, but we spoke uh, with his wife, and she was able to set up once he recovered a couple weeks later a telephone interview. So I actually didn't meet face to face with him, uh, but nonetheless. Spoke to him uh, uh, twice, and uh, yeah, I mean he's he's a he's a personable guy, and in fact, I think that's one of the things that made him a very effective spy because he's sort of a charming fellow that uh, you know people tend to like. He had friends pretty much everywhere he went. He didn't have necessarily the closest friends, but um, he was a sort of fellow that people tended to like. When he was held in prison for for five years, he was um, despite being a traitor, he was probably the most popular. Prisoner at Wormwood Scrubs in in London because he was, he was always taking an interest in other people, you know, helping them write letters to their lawyers or, you know, holding little classes in in different languages, French class or or German class for, for inmates who were interested. And he did the same thing, I think, as a as a spy. He was just a nice, accommodating, self-deprecating humor type person, and that's why the British, I think, when they began to suspect when uh, that they there was a mole in the organization when the CIA basically gave them information saying we have a defector who says there's a a mole in British intelligence they they looked it over and they they looked at Blake because he was one of the people that one of the few people that would have had this information and at first they just couldn't imagine that he would be a a traitor he was just that highly regarded and uh, not suspected Uh, so yeah yeah I had to remind myself while talking to him that of what he'd done, but that—that—that that, uh, that was, you know, part of his. Uh, uh, as I said, what what made him a, an effective rem- He more or less says he's not a traitor or a hero. He tries to present himself as this neutral figure. That's that's <laughs> been his his line now for basically fifty or sixty years since uh, since his arrest. So <clears throat> this has been
0: this has been fun chatting with you about this. Especially we're in Berlin at the same yeah. time. It's kind of wild. I, I did have some questions though. You, you mentioned in your book that. Um, the Bob the Berlin operating base I I remember that
1: building yeah that's where the uh, they they moved in the midst of the tunnel operation so they moved from that original building that Alan Dulles had you know when he was the OSS had had first arrived in Berlin right after at the end of the war that's where the OSS and then the CIA operated from but then as the the CIA is ramping up because of the cold war because of Bill Harvey being this dynamo in Berlin and, and this Tunnel operation that nobody knew about. They needed more space, so they they moved into the where the U.S. Army Berlin Command was. They took one of the buildings back there, and that's where um, my father would have worked, where uh, Bill Harvey and the um, was working at the at the time that the tunnel went operational. Which it, it seems like the the tunnel itself and that kind of intelligence
0: collection did more did wasn't so much like an advantage for one side of another, but it seems to be. A force for peace that is, that is for transparency or for seeing what the enemies are actually right. doing. And on one hand, you have military parades down Tschertskaia Boulevard and the, the Red Square, or whatever. And then you have you know these people kind of sneaking around, tapping phone lines, making connections, and just, you know developing assets and so forth. I'm just wondering, like in, in writing this book and kind of coming up with this, you know, this story that you started to see like a larger force at work. Of the role of intelligence, it's a broad question, but um, just wanted to throw that out there.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's interesting because, I, I mean, I think that is uh, part of what was accomplished with the tunnel. Essentially, transparency, I think, is is uh, an interesting word because that is what um, Eisenhower, who was president then, was seeking during the time uh, that the tunnel was uh, was in operation. There was a big summit in Geneva. With Eisenhower and Khrushchev and Bulganin, who was the premier at the time of uh, the Soviet Union, and uh, also the the you know the British and the French were there. But Eisenhower made, makes this proposal for open skies, which would allow each side to fly over the land of the other one to keep an, tabs on their military and make sure there isn't some sort of mobilization for war. And Khrushchev rejects that. But ironically. With the tunnel operating that that was and and the fact that Khrushchev knew that the tunnel was operating, they were getting some of that transparency, they were getting a signal that the the Soviets were not planning any kind of, you know, nuclear Pearl Harbor, which was Eisenhower's nightmare. And so it offered reassurance to to Eisenhower because you you read through some of his diaries at the at the time. And, you know, he's he is uh, petrified that he might have to order a preemptive strike against the Soviets because he doesn't know what they're doing. The the CIA, uh, U.S. intelligence general, is getting nothing out of the Soviet Union, and the the tunnel provides them with this first real reassurance. And then, ironically, just at the time that the tunnel is exposed, after it had operated for about a year, in 1956, and within a month of that, the U-2 is operational, making its first flights over Soviet territory, and so it's kind of like a baton being passed in a way. It's like, okay, the tunnel, we don't have that anymore. But now we can, we can fly over Soviet territory. And then um, by the time the, the U-2 is shot down, we're pretty much uh, ready to move on to, to Satellites. Um, uh, satellite technology. So it's kind of like this transparency has been somewhat maintained uh, over, over a very dangerous period of time. You know, those are certainly some of the most dangerous years of the Cold War, the 50s and early 60s. And starting with Popov, we've had this series of high ranking
0: defectors that have just kept us Yeah, informed.
1: And uh, Pen- Penkovsky and you know, one of the, the interesting things, uh chilling things perhaps, is that it's not clear and, and you you probably saw this in the book, but it's there's there's some evidence that points to Blake being responsible for both Popov and Penkovsky being detected. You know, he was in a position and he did pass on information that that could have led to their exposure. It's not a certain thing in either case, but I did find, um, you know, an interesting memo that Alan Dulles gave to President Kennedy at the time of uh, Blake's arrest in 1961 that alludes to Blake having uh, blown the identity of a, of a very important spy asset in Moscow who was subsequently arrested and executed. And that that could be Penkovsky, he didn't identify him, but there is that possibility. So. Popov and Petkovsky both gave their lives uh, passing on information to the West that that helped preserve the peace and in Petkovsky's case that was during the, the Cuban missile crisis a, a very dangerous point
0: Stephen Vogel thanks so much for your time it's been a real pleasure talking yeah. to you and uh, I really enjoyed the book Betrayal in Berlin yeah it's been fun
1: yeah Mark this has been really cool I've uh, enjoyed talking to you very much that was my
0: conversation with Stephen Vogel. His book, Betrayal in Berlin, The True Story of the Cold War's Most Audacious Espionage Operation, it is available wherever you get your books now. Also, he had some great interviews with uh, Ian Sanders of the Cold War Conversations and with Shane Whaley of um, Spyberry as well to find out more about this operation. It was a daring plan to dig a clandestine tunnel into the Soviet sector of Berlin. Um, also, go check out the... Um, show notes at the live for further links and keep listening. End of transmission.